For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 11, verse 1 through 21, which uh, entitled Discerning God's Will. Obviously, this is a topic that many of us will face as we try to follow God. Last week, to give us a little bit of context, first of all, we saw that God orchestrated the events leading to Cornelius' coming to Christ. If you can recall, God gave this guy Cornelius, who was a non-Jewish guy, a Gentile, this vision that this guy named Simon Peter was someone he needed to go and talk to. And so he, God directed Cornelius to send a couple of his men over to meet Simon Peter and bring him back to where he was. Simon Peter, sometime later, had a vision where God laid out this huge sheet, this blanket filled with unclean animals. And this happened several times. And as Peter was puzzling over this, Cornelius' men show up. And so at that moment, it was very clear, it sort of clicked in his head that what God was trying to communicate was that this tradition that the Jewish people held at this time was preventing Peter from sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with non-Jewish people. And so God was setting up a new order in which, uh, which included the Gentiles. And so this marked the next phase of God's plan in salvation history. And also we see that Peter broke free from the traditions of men that held him captive. And we talk about how as you pile on these traditions upon God's word, his truth, that often we find ourselves not following both what God says and the traditions of human beings, but that we tend to set aside God's truth in order to follow these human traditions. And so it can become a barrier to faithfulness to God. We go into our passage in Acts chapter 11 and we read, Soon the news reached the apostles and other believers in Judea that the Gentiles had received the word of God. But when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers criticized him. Remember, they weren't there when all of these events took place with Cornelius. So they were still locked in this grid of, of looking at the non-Jewish people as unclean. You know, the Jewish people felt like if you even invited a Jewish or a non-Jewish person, a Gentile, into your home, that that would render your entire household unclean. And so you couldn't go to the temple or anything like that. They said, you enter the home of Gentiles and even ate with them, they said. And then Peter told them exactly what had happened. So a few things as the readers. First of all, it's plain to us what God's will was, right? We, we read the account. Luke tells us that it was God's will that Peter go and share the good news of Jesus Christ with these people. Also, Peter felt certain that this was God's will. He was the one who received this vision in the first place. God spoke directly to him. And then, as he was sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with Cornelius and his entire household, he actually saw the Holy Spirit descend upon them. So, Peter felt certain about God's will. But 
really the Jewish Christians who are hearing this for the first time needed to be convinced as well. And I think that that's where our concept of discerning God's will comes in. That this account gives us some signposts for discerning God's will. And I think it raises larger questions of how do we discern God's will for our lives, as we'll see in his account. Okay, let's set up sort of a framework for knowing God's will before we go through these different signposts. I think the first thing that we need to understand is that God has a specific will for our lives. Now, for some of us who have been following God for some time, that may seem like a basic concept, but for some of us, that might actually be new. That God has a specific purpose and plan for your life. Passages such as Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 say, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now this word workmanship is the Greek word poema, which means masterpiece. This was a, a term that they would use for the unveiling of a, you know, a sculpture that some famous artists carved. And so God is essentially saying that we are his completed masterpiece. We are his finished work. Even though sometimes we look at ourselves and we're like, man, I'm a, I'm a work in progress for sure. But from God's standpoint, he sees you as a completed work, finished in Christ. And most importantly, he says that he has created in Christ good works for us to do in advance so that we might walk in them. In other words, God has given us sort of a preset potential and that he has orchestrated our lives such that we have this potential that we can live up to. And really it's a matter of our faithfulness to be able to see that potential met. So this passage, along with other passages we read in the New Testament, fill our lives with significance and purpose. You know, contrary to our world, you know, you see people walking around and they're just staggering to and fro, looking for meaning in their lives. You know, grasping for significance through career. Grasping for significance by attaining as much money and, and as many possessions as they possibly can. And, you know, for a moment, it might give them a sense of fulfillment or a sense of satisfaction to gain these things. But occasionally what will happen is a thought will pop into their minds. And I remember feeling this way as a non-Christian person. What's the point of all this? Why am I killing myself to accomplish this thing? Because in the grand scheme of things, I'm not sure how it even matters. You know, fast forward your life 60 years. And as you're sitting there lying, awaiting your death, what good is your vacation home going to do? Or that beautiful boat that you spent all of this money on. It's not going to do a bit of good. It's not going to matter whatsoever. And so chasing after significance through these temporal things really is a trap. God says he provides us a way better alternative that the significance we can obtain in this life has to do with these good works that he's prepared for us to do in advance. And so this points to the fact that God has a very specific will for our lives. That's why in, later on in the book, 
Paul was able to say in Ephesians 5 verse 17, he says, therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. That it's actually possible to understand God's will for your life. That he wants to reveal that to you. Secondly, God takes on the responsibility to lead us. I think that's an important point to make here. Because most of the time we sort of feel this sense of anxiety mounting in our lives that we have this responsibility to try to direct our own lives. Yet when you look at the Bible, God often portrays himself as the good shepherd who leads us, his flock. For example, in John chapter 10, verse 3 through 4, Jesus says, The sheep recognize the good shepherd's voice and come to him. He calls out his own sheep by name and leads them out. And after he has gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them and they follow him because they know his voice. So this isn't just a metaphor that God uses in the New Testament. We see this even in the Old Testament as well. Where God tries to get us to see ourselves as sheep or, you know, part of his flock and that he's a good shepherd. There are a couple things that I think this metaphor provides us which I think is really encouraging. The first is that when you look at a shepherd, you know, a shepherd provides for his sheep. Now, when you think of like a rancher today, you know, ranchers typically have a cow or a few cows in their herd. And then the ultimate goal is to maybe get some milk from that cow, but then the purpose is to slaughter the cow and to get meat from it, right? But in the ancient world, they didn't really have that luxury. You know, think about in Luke chapter 15, remember when the lost son comes back? He says, go and slaughter a a fattened calf for this special occasion. So it was something that was very uncommon for them to go and slaughter these animals. Most of the time, they would take these these, uh, sheep from their flock and they would use use these sheep for their milk. And so these animals would often be in the flock for, you know, 5, 10, 15 years. They'd become sort of like household pets. But they were kind of pets with benefits, I guess. And so they would, you know, shepherds would develop this long-term relationship with these sheep. They would often name them too. And we're told that the, the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. They probably named him, you know, like, you know, Matilda, come here, you know, and, you know, come scurrying out. So this points to the fact that, you know, God wants to provide for us. He wants to lead us in the context of a relationship. And I like this, this visual that God gives to us that he calls out his own sheep by name and then leads them out. In other words, unlike a herd of, of cattle, the shepherd doesn't drive the sheep or the flock. He walks out in front of them and the sheep follow him because they know and trust the shepherd. It really gives us a beautiful picture of the kind of relationship God wants to have with us. Secondly, the shepherd was responsible to make sure uh, to protect the sheep. There were a lot of predators lurking around in the wilderness and so the shepherd often had to you know, put his life on the line in order to protect the sheep. And if you know anything about sheep, sheep aren't the most intelligent creatures, right? Um, they, 
they have a lot of qualities, but intelligence definitely doesn't mark them as one of, the, one of their great traits. You know, when you think about animals, most of the time, you know, there are two things that they, they do whenever they face danger, you know, fight or flight. And you think about sheep, how do they fight off predators? Well, they really can't. They don't have fangs. Uh, they don't have claws. They don't have a shell, right? If anything, they're eight pounds of Velcro, which makes it easier for, you know, a predator to come and drag them down. Uh, the other thing about sheep, too, is that they have a poor eyesight and usually a bad sense of direction. And so... Uh, their only strategy for survival is to run in a herd. And so you can imagine, you know, little Joey she uh, sheep is, is standing there and sees a predator, a wolf coming, and it sets off this, this reflex to run. And, you know, all the other sheep just start running with little Joey sheep. Now, they don't know why they're running, and little Joey sheep is the only one who really knows why, and he's probably dead, but they're just running. And so, you know, when you think about sheep, that doesn't, you know, this metaphor of us being God's flock, his sheep, it's, it's not really a, fa it's not, it doesn't really put us in a favorable light. You know, we're compared to God pretty dumb. And just like sheep, we're pretty stubborn. We think we know the best way. We think we can provide for ourselves, but we're really defenseless and helpless. And God often allows us to see our helplessness so that we can actually trust him. You know, this I feel like is really comforting because a lot of times when we are moving through life, it's easy to feel like you're sort of walking this tightrope that if you, if you take a misstep, that you could miss out on God's will. And yet this illustration suggests that God wants to lead us. And that if we play our part, that we're not going to miss out on God's will. You know, I used to feel this way, especially about marriage, where, you know, I'd date a girl and, um, you know, the question would inevitably come up, is this girl the one, right? Is she the one that I should, like, marry? It would always freak me out because I would feel like, you know, maybe I missed a sign. Maybe there was a girl that, you know, I missed an opportunity with. And maybe that's really the, the girl that God wanted me to be with. And yet, if we trust that God leads us as the good shepherd, then we don't have to worry about that. We don't have to have that kind of anxiety. Uh, I think about my own experience of, uh, you know, getting engaged to my wife. And it's kind of funny because even though I had these real superficial uh, things that, that are on my list of things that I wanted. Like, you know, I wanted somebody who uh, listened to the same kind of music, somebody who liked art. You know, she had to be hot. And of course, yeah, she had to be spiritual too, right? <laughs> and, um, you know, and so my wife, you know, she, she ticked all of the boxes. And, you know, looking back on it, it's, those things are really cool. We enjoy going to museums together. We, we listen to the same music and that's fun. But, you know, the qualities that she possessed that help complement me as a, as a worker for God, I didn't see that initially when I, when I decided to get engaged to her. It was very clear that God was directing my path 
even using some of my foolish criteria in order to lead me to the person that he wanted me to marry. Now, I think there's also our responsibility in obtaining God's will also that we need to keep track of. Really, our responsibility is to make sure that we are willing to follow God. That really becomes one of the major barriers to discerning God's will. Really, it's a matter of us being willing to open up every area of our lives and allowing God to give us input in those areas. Because most of the time, when we come to Christ, we're willing to give certain things over to him. But there comes a place, a, a time, where God calls on us to give our entire lives over to him. And, you know, once we, once we do that, once we cross over that threshold and give our lives over to God, it gives us assurance that we're willing to allow God to speak in these areas and give us direction about his will. You know, if, we, if we've decided to cordon off a certain area of our lives and say, you know, okay, God, I want you to speak to these areas, but this, this area, like my profession or who I date and who I marry, that's sort of like off limits. That's restricted area. You know, do, do we think that when we ask God, so God, what's your will for my life when it comes to my profession? You think that God's going to answer that? If we've determined in advance that we're not going to listen to him? This is what James says in James 1, verse 5 through 8. He says, if you need wisdom, ask God generously and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking, but when you ask him, be sure that your faith in, is in God alone. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world. You know, it's sort of dishonest for us to ask God, so I want you to reveal your will to me, but inwardly we know that regardless of what he says, we've got our mind made up. You think God's going to answer that, that prayer? I remember uh, one time a guy was considering purchasing this really expensive sports car, and he was like still in college. And so he said, you know, hey, I, want, I was wondering if you could like sit down and talk to me about this. I feel like this is an important decision. And so we sat down, and for a couple hours, he started to explain to me the pros and cons. And I pointed out to him, I said, I feel like there's sort of a danger here because you're still in college, and once you sign the papers, the monthly payment is going to require you to work tons of hours, which might actually take you out of fellowship and interfere with your desire to really go all out for God. I said, plus, you've admitted to me that you struggle with materialism, and, and do you think maybe that this is you know, a temptation for you to buy this car to, to, you know, feed your materialistic thirst. And he's like, man, those are really good points and stuff. And so by the end of the conversation, I was like, so what do you, what do you think you're leaning to, uh, toward? And he's like, oh, <laughs> he's like, uh, yeah, I signed the papers this morning. And, I, you know, my, I had to pick my jaw up off the ground. I was just like, Oh my God. If I would have known that from the beginning of our conversation, I wouldn't have wasted two hours talking to you about this. I mean, luckily God doesn't have those kind of limitations. He knows in advance. He knows our hearts, whether we're going we're gonna to listen to him when we ask for input. And so when we ask God, please give me guidance on this particular area that we have sealed off from him, 
and we don't get an answer, maybe it's because we haven't given that area of our lives over to him. I think the second thing is that we want to make sure to start a relationship with God. That's really God's will for all people. We can be certain of that. Jesus says in John 6, verse 28 and 29, he said, you know, the people asked him, what must we do in order to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, he says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one whom he's sent. And so the Bible teaches that it's God's will for us to come into a relationship with him, to place our faith, our trust in Jesus. And, you know, for some of you here tonight who are visiting who may not be very familiar with Christianity, if you take anything away from tonight, it should be this right here. It's God's will for you to have a relationship with him. But what stands in the way of you having a relationship with him is your sin. You've done some things that have offended God, that render you guilty before God. And yet, God doesn't want to render a judgment upon you. He's he sent his own son, Jesus, to come and die and forgive you for your sins. And the Bible teaches that the moment we place our faith in him, trusting in what Jesus has done on our behalf, that we can begin a relationship with him, and that God actually comes to dwell in us through the Holy Spirit, and that the Holy Spirit gives us guidance in our lives, leading us toward God's will. Also, you know, we need to consider that there are different types of decisions. We need to have a nuanced perspective of decision-making in the Bible. First of all, you know, you could say that there are different shades of decision-making. On the one hand, you have moral decisions. These are clear, and they are outlined in the Bible. You know, you don't have to pray or churn over the question of, Lord, should I murder this person I really hate? Look no further than the Bible, okay? Exodus chapter 20 says, don't kill people. That's not good, okay? Okay, Lord, you know, um, I'm really feeling like I should smoke crack tonight. Is that your will? Uh, you know, God's very clear about those sorts of things. So there's really no guessing when it comes to these things. God speaks directly to these moral areas, these decisions. On the opposite extreme, you have what might be non-moral decisions, these are decisions that contain no moral significance whatsoever. So, you know, when you wake up this tomorrow morning, you know, you open up your closet and you think to yourself, okay, I've got two decisions here. I, I can wear my coral t-shirt or, um, you know, my canary yellow one, which I really like. <laughs> I mean, there's really... There's nothing wrong with either one of those other than the fact that maybe one of them might cause an accident as you cross High Street. Um, so, you know, really no, neither one of those are right or wrong. It doesn't matter. God doesn't have a specific will for your life, whether you eat, you know, English muffins in the morning or whether you have, you know, strawberries and yogurt. He doesn't care. And so we have freedom in those areas. Then you have what might be called complicated moral decisions. And these are decisions which require maybe two or three biblical principles where those principles give us direction toward God's will. So for example, when we encounter questions like, you know, should Christians go to war? 
That's, that's a complicated moral issue, but there are principles in the Bible that direct us and help inform us on how to figure out what to do there. Then you have what are called gray area decisions. These are the kind of decisions that even though God gives moral principles or biblical principles that sort of lay the banks of the river for our decision, that it provides individual freedom for the believer. So for example, when you look at uh, the book of Romans, there was a situation brewing where there was a division between the Jewish Christians who refused to eat any sort of meat that was coming from the market because the, that meat was sacrificed to idols. Whereas there were non-Jewish Christians who felt totally at home eating that meat because they knew there are no such things as false gods. And so I'm going to take liberty here. And so each party was judging another. So when Paul decides to weigh in on this issue, how do you think he decides? He says, well, do whatever your conscience tells you. But he lays out some biblical principles to help people understand how to make these, these gray area decisions. And so, you know, for example, last week we talked about how there are some Christian teachers that go actually beyond what the Bible say, says and says that, you know, no Christian should ever drink any alcohol of any kind. And we pointed out that there's nothing like that contained in the Bible. And yet, there are some people who, because of their background, maybe you come from a substance abuse background where you feel like, you know, I, I know that maybe this guy over here who's never really struggled with substance abuse or alcohol abuse, you know, he, he's fine to have a beer, but I know myself. And I know that it would, it would be... It would get me in a lot of trouble if I even had one drink. And so maybe there are some Christians who abstain from drinking. But that's going to fall within these gray area decisions. And there may be a number of different areas that might fall into this category, such as, you know, whether to watch movies. You know, I think it's fine to watch movies. But some people might feel like, you know, there are, there are things that I watch in movies that sort of like tempt me. Or the kind of music you listen to. Uh, where they feel like, well, you know, I can't really listen to rap anymore because, uh, you know, it makes me want to go out and rob a liquor store. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> that's within your individual freedom to, to say, I'm going to abstain from that, right? Then you have what you might call complex decisions, okay? Now, these are decisions where Really, there are no biblical principles that tell us what we should do in these areas, but there are biblical principles that help guide us. And these are really the kind of decisions that most of us get hung up on. These decisions include things like, what kind of profession should I enter? Who should I marry? Should I make this really large purchase? Of course, when you think about those sorts of things, I mean... Really, there's tons of freedom in those areas. Of course, there are some restrictions. You know, when you're thinking, okay, what profession should I enter? You know, God would say being a pimp is probably not a good profession. Okay, so, so there are going to be some restrictions there. Or, you know, I want to be a professional uh, Magic the Gathering player. 
you know, God wants you to do something that requires some self-respect. <laughs> Just joking. Uh, <laughs> Um, anyway, so, but you know, even though really, you know, if you, if you decide between, okay, do I want to be a lawyer or do I want to get into real estate, you know, either one of those decisions, uh, are, you know, they're not morally right or wrong, right? And yet when you think about these complex decisions, even though there's no right or wrong answer to them, they may have a real big impact on our spiritual lives. You know, if you enter a profession where you have to work 70, 80 hours a week, that may prevent you from loving your family and from being involved in fellowship. So even though it may not be wrong to enter that profession, it may actually prevent you from fulfilling these other things that God wants you to do. You know, when you think about, oh, should I buy a house in this neighborhood or this other neighborhood. I mean, really, God's not going to tell you one way or the other that one is wrong. But where you move might have an impact on your spiritual life. If you move 30 minutes away from your home church, that might, be, that might impact people's ability to come over to your house and, and hang out with you or want to. And so these kind of complex decisions are very important. And these are the kind of things that we want to sort of talk about. Now, first of all, knowing God's will, and especially in these complex decisions, they don't require knowing the future. You know, a lot of times we want control in our lives. We want a blueprint before we sign off and say, okay, I'm cool with that. But God says, often if you want to understand and know my will, you're going to have to follow me and trust me even though you may not know where, where we're going exactly. There are a number of reasons for this. First of all, it could be paralyzing to find out what your future holds. You know, if you realize the kind of struggles that you would face in marriage, you might not want to ever get married, right? Um, think about in the Bible where Saul sought out the um, medium from Endor to find out about his future as soon as he found out that he would die a premature death he was seized with paralyzing fear and fell to the ground and so i think god knows that if he just laid out the entire plan to us that it would probably freak us out and so it's it's really a good thing for him to withhold that information from us it's loving Blaine Smith, in his excellent book called Knowing God's Will, says, God leads us as much by the information he withholds as by information that he gives. I think there's a lot of truth and wisdom to that. Secondly, it could stifle our moment-by-moment dependence upon God. God laid out the whole plan, then what's the point in depending upon him to seek out his guidance for our lives? And finally, it would add a level of boredom to our lives. If we knew what was going to happen, it's sort of like, you know, seeing the end of the story or the end of the movie before you walk into the theater. It would sort of ruin the whole thing. And following God is really exciting. Contrary to what most people believe, it's, it's, it's not boring at all if you're really into following God. It's very exciting. It's thrilling. It can be scary sometimes too. All right, let's turn to our passage. 
Acts 11, verse 4 and 5, and see if we can pick up some of these signposts. Then Peter told him exactly what had happened. It was in the town of Joppa, he said, and while I was praying, I went into a trance and saw a vision. Something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. Then when I looked inside the sheet, I saw all sorts of tame and wild animals, reptiles and birds, and I heard a voice saying, Peter, get up, kill and eat. He says, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything that our Jewish law has declared impure or unclean. But the voice from heaven spoke again, don't call something unclean if God has made it clean. And this happened three times before the sheet and all it contained was pulled back up into heaven. So we read this story, but this is from Peter's own words, what happened. So this leads us, I think, to our first signpost, which was direct revelation. That God directly revealed himself uh, to Peter and what his will for his life was. And uh, of course, this would make things pretty easy for us if God just simply gave us a revelation every single time we faced one of these complex decisions in our lives. Uh, and it does happen sometimes. We see people who talk about seeing a vision from God and God directing them to exactly what he wants from them. But I have to say that I've never really had anything like this. That, you know, when you examine the New Testament, for example... When you look at the Apostle Paul and his missionary journeys, it's easy, I think, sometimes to believe that God gave Paul all of these visions directing him on where he should travel. But if you actually take all of the different missionary journeys and look at how God communicated his will in each and every one of those situations, by far the majority of times he was allowing Paul to use his own reasoning and to sort of think his way through, how can I be most effective for God? And that was the way that he chose the direction he should go on his missionary journeys. So, you know, God doesn't want us to just simply throw our brain away and be like, okay, God, tell me what to do next. He doesn't want us to be like robots. He, want us, he wants us to use our intellect. He wants us to use our reason as we are sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading. Blaine Smith points this out about Paul's journeys. He says, his travel decisions in general were based not on supernatural guidance, but on the same sort of logical process that modern Christians would use. He didn't wait for dramatic guidance, but merely look for the most obvious and logical opportunity to invest his time and energy for Christ in the most fruitful way. So this points to what some people have called spiritual expediency, where if you have embraced God's values of loving and serving him, then we're going to look for opportunities to bear the most amount of fruit for him. And those things are going to guide our decisions, especially when it comes to these complex decisions. We're told just then three men who had been sent from Caesarea arrived at the house where they were staying, and the Holy Spirit told me to go with them and not to worry that they were Gentiles. These six brothers here accompanied me, and we soon entered the home of the man who had sent for us. So we're told just then, as he was pondering this vision, these men show up. And this leads us to our second signpost, which is that God 
will reveal his will through what might be called correlated leading. That's where he, um, you know, works through several different parties and aligns them in order to show his will. You know, or, you know, some people say uh, working both sides against the middle. Now, this isn't some sort of superstitious thing. And I've been guilty of this, you know, where you're driving along the, the road or whatever and you're thinking to yourself, okay, God, is it your will for me to ask out this girl? If so, let that red light turn green by the time I hit this intersection, you know. So you just, you let off the accelerator, you, you coast, and you know, uh, as, you, as you're about to approach the intersection, the light turns green, you're like, praise the Lord, <laughs> you know. Of course, you know, the entire time you were sort of feathering your brakes a little bit, try to, try to make sure to, to ensure that this was God's will. You know, God doesn't work that way. That, that's more like trying to, to interpret omens. That's not the way that correlated leading works. A lot of times it's where God will place us in situations where we're talking to individuals who will confirm his will almost independently. I remember there were times where I sensed that God was like moving me in a certain direction and somebody out of the blue came and talked to me and said, you know, uh, it's really interesting. I think that, you know, God is saying you should move in this direction. I'm like, man, that's exactly what I was thinking. Crazy. Or he'll align circumstances either where he's opening up doors or he's closing them as I'm moving in a certain direction. A lot of times God reveals his will by closed doors because as we evaluate, okay, God, I'm not sure exactly what direction to move here, and I'm just going to take a stab in the dark and move in this direction. But if we're yielded to him, if we're willing to follow, like I mentioned earlier, in advance, then we'll be willing to see that God is maybe closing that door and saying, I don't want you to move in this direction. I want you to go the other way. And so that's how correlated leading works. Also, we're told the Holy Spirit told me to go with them. So this points to the third signpost, which is inner spiritual prompting. This is where you get sort of a, a subjective sense that God is moving you in a certain direction. This is something I think we need to develop. First of all, we need to understand what God says because I think it's easy for us to sort of follow our feelings. That's not the same as this. You know, a lot of times our feelings get us into trouble. A lot of times our feelings lead us in the wrong direction. But for the person who understands God's word and, under, and has adopted his values and has allowed God's values to shape their lives, then as they cultivate spiritual sensitivity with God by developing their relationship with him, you'll, you'll get these strong inner promptings. Uh, and it's amazing when these happen. You can tell that this is from God. Also, we're told that these guys said he told us how an angel had appeared to him in his home and had him uh, told him, send messengers to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He will tell you how you and everybody in your household can be saved. And Peter said, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he fell on us in the beginning. Then I thought of the Lord's words when he said, John the Baptist, or John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So this leads us to our fourth signpost, which is that the Holy Spirit fell upon them 
in Peter's presence. So what Peter saw was spiritual fruit. And I think that that could be a real good sign that this is God's will. When you're moving in a certain direction and you see God bearing fruit through your decision, that indicates that God might be behind this. I remember when um, I was leading a high school group back in the day, it was a Clintonville group and it was doing bad, it sucked. I remember there was a freshman guy who joined up with our group and he said, man, I've got like, you know, 10 or 12 friends who want to come out to this Bible study, but we live all the way in Pickerington and we can't, you know, drive all the way out here. And I said, well, why don't we do this? I'll keep leading this high school Bible study, but in addition to that, I'll come out to Pickerington and start a little Bible study with you and your friends, see how that goes. And so we started doing that, and uh, for the first meeting, you know, we had like three people, we're like, oh, that's good. Three people showed up, and within about three months, that grew to about 12 or 13 kids. And several of them actually invited Christ into their life. And that group continued to grow, and it, and it became clear as this other group was failing that, you know, God was calling me to move in that direction. And it's amazing because uh, that group's still around today and has actually grown and has planted out on the east side. And so that was a, a, an indication that God was moving through this situation. Now, there are other sources for knowing God's will, a couple others that we want to talk about. First of all, Consulting spiritually mature people, okay? I emphasize mature because we have an uncanny ability to try to find people who are going to agree with what we want. And so it's important for us to seek out people who are mature, who are going to tell us the hard truth. Consider what the Proverbs say on this. Proverbs 12, verse 15, the way of the fool seems right to him, but the wise man listens to advice. Yeah, a lot of times a, an idea will pop into our head and we'll think, oh, that's a good idea. But the wise person takes the extra step and says, I'm going to go seek out some advice on this. What about Proverbs 27, verse 17? Is sharp, iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. You know, God puts people in your life to help you work through some of these complex decisions. They're hard. Now, this assumes that we have close relationships with other believers in our spiritual community. You know, one of the biggest problems that we have is that we don't want to open up to people because we're afraid. We don't trust people. And so, if we want counsel, that means that we have, we've developed a relationship with people and we've built that trust where we feel the freedom to go and ask people about pretty important areas of our life. Also, that means that people get to know us as well, that we make ourselves available, that we're vulnerable to them. Because how can anyone hand tailor some advice for us if they don't really know us that well? So this, this implies that we are deeply immersed in, spirit, in a spiritual community. Secondly, we should never take unqualified advice, especially in these areas of complex decisions. If somebody tells you, you need to do this, that's a red flag. Nobody should be telling you what you should do in terms of your dating life or what kind of major uh, you should pursue or how you should spend your money. Nobody should be telling you how to do that. And I've actually refused people who have said, okay, just make this decision for me. Please, I'm, I'm just agonized over what to do here. Just, just tell me what I need to do. Just make it way simpler. And I'm like, no, dude. 
You need to take responsibility for your own decisions. I remember I was struggling through this same question of what my, you know, what major to go into. And the older guy that I was studying the Bible with was talking to me about it. And I was like, okay, just, dude, I don't know what to do. Can you please just tell me, should I be going to history or engineering? And he's like, I'm not going to answer that question for you. I'm like, why? He's like, I'm I'm not going to give you unqualified advice. That's not my job. I'm here to help guide your thinking. And so we should never take unqualified advice, and we should never give unqualified advice. It's It's outside of our authority. That's outside of what God calls on us to do. Secondly, God also wants to use our personal desires and gifting. You know, sometimes we think to ourselves, man, I really like this, so that probably means that God doesn't want me to do it. You know, I hate math, so God's probably going to make me become a math teacher. And, you know, that, I think, indicates the kind of view that we have about God, that he doesn't want to give us things that we desire. Sometimes the deciding factor falls on this. What do we really want? Because we've considered all of the different options. This is what Psalm 34 verse uh, 7 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. The important qualification here would be that you should delight yourself in the Lord first and foremost. In other words, that you allow God to transform your thinking and your desires so they fit with his values and his desires. And then he will give you the desires of your heart. A lot of times when we come to Christ, our desires and our values are skewed. And God needs to sort of hammer that out and straighten it so that it aligns with his will. Okay, let's draw a few points of application. I think the first thing is that there's an encouraging postscript to all of this. As the believers were trying to figure out God's will, we're told Peter concluded, and since God gave these Gentiles the same gift he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is I to stand in God's way? When the others heard this, they stopped objecting and began praising God. They said, we can see that God has also given the Gentiles the privilege of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. Some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus, and the power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. They were completely convinced that God was working through the Gentiles. So contrary to the sorry postscript that we saw last week, these believers responded in a positive way. Secondly, we should look for a convergence of these signs as we try to discern God's will. Some of us are faced with big decisions right now. You know, we're maybe pondering, should I get engaged? Uh, Should I marry this person? Some of us are pondering, you know, now that uh, I've graduated, where should I seek for a job? Should I stay here? Or should I go somewhere else to a different state? Maybe we're asking questions like, should I make this really big purchase? And I think for many people, it doesn't make sense that God has a specific will in these areas. But, you know, if you believe that God is sovereign over all aspects of your life, then certainly uh, he wants, he has a will that he wants to uncover. And it's our job to try to discern that. 
And a lot of times it's not real easy to figure out what God's will is in, the, in these kind of situations, but we need to look for a convergence. Several of these signposts coming together and it becomes clear, okay, this is what God wants. Or at least I feel like this is the general direction that God is leading me and so I'm going to take a step forward and maybe allow him to close a door if that's not his will. Thirdly, do you want to live your life your way or God's way? I think that's the central question some of us need to ask. Whether it's the person who's never met Christ in the first place. God wants to take up the mantle of leadership in your life. You know, some of us are feeling exhausted. Some of us are feeling anxious. Some of us feel pressure to try to provide for ourselves. The reason you feel that way, it's because you're trying to direct your life. And according to God, he created you to be in a dependent relationship with him. The moment that you allow God to take over the leadership of your life, it melts away so much anxiety. But the only way to allow God to lead you is to first build a relationship with him. And that starts by receiving Christ. So I'd encourage you to do that tonight if you've never done that before. It's God's will for your life. For those of us who already have a relationship with God, maybe your next step is to turn to God and make what some people call the second decision. This is where we evaluate all areas of our lives and say, you know what, God? Uh, I'm scared. I'm not sure I want to give up control of my life, but I'm just going to push it all in and let you have control. I remember doing that a number of years ago when I was a young Christian, and I thought that I would regret that decision. But... um, I look back on my life and I feel like, you know, God has provided for me in incredible ways. And so if you want assurance that you're in the center of God's will, you need to do that. Okay, there you have Acts chapter 11. Yeah, Lord, uh, thanks that you outlined some of these signposts for us. Um, I know that I used to hold sort of that superstitious view of knowing your will. And I remember uh, discovering this uh, for the first time, you know, uh, being able to discern your will in these different ways. And it was, um, it was really cool. And I feel like it revolutionized my relationship with you. And um, I pray that uh, for those of us who are facing big decisions, that we would uh, ponder this further. And that we would uh, seek out resources to help us understand how to discern your will better. For those of us, Lord, who um, have never begun a relationship with you, who um, are trying to direct our own paths, uh, stubbornly trying to insist on our own way, I pray that we would come to a place of humility where we see that we are aimless, that we are scurrying to try to find meaning in our lives. Uh, that really nothing in this world can provide. And uh, I pray that we can come to the point where we turn to you and uh, receive the forgiveness that allows us to have a relationship with you and to, to start this path of discerning your will. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.
This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.